Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. Today, I want to talk about the health of the Republican Party and the state of the conservative movement in America. Is it possible that a governing majority can be created after Donald Trump? Or, having struggled in the last three elections, are we destined to go the way of the state of Virginia? With me to talk this through is one of the most interesting couples in Washington, Mercedes and Matt Schlapp. Mercy is Director of Strategic Communications for the Trump-Pence re-election campaign. Matt is Chairman of the American Conservative Union, the sponsor of CPAC. Together, they are raising five beautiful daughters and have a farm near Rappahannock County, Virginia, where I live. Mercy, Matt. Thank you for great having us. Great to be with us. you, Bill. Yeah, it's great to have you here. We've had such great conversations off camera. It's fun to get you in here and, and go at it here. Usually out in Rappahannock, which is one of the most <laughs> beautiful areas in the country. It is. You, were, you just left the White House after two years. What was that like? You know, it was a very uh, special and, what would I say, exciting time uh, being at the White House. It was obviously a huge honor to serve the president. Uh, I think, you know, I worked in the communications office, so we dealt with the everyday battles. So while there was the sense of we have this purpose and we have to keep pushing the president's very successful agenda that we've seen so far, it was the constant fight <coughs> against media outlets, liberal media outlets that had one goal in mind, which was to which has been to derail this president and 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 literally fight us tooth and nail when it came to any stories that they were publishing that were obviously anti-Trump. So battle, you know, we had the battles every day, but at the same time we knew that we were doing the work for the American people and the results show that, which is a very a booming economy right now. And Americans benefiting because of what President Trump has pushed in terms of economic policy. We won't hear much about that. <laughs> not, now, not the, was everybody the was everybody in the White House playing on the same team? You know, I think that the White House. Always would you like a big... Would you like a drink of water? Before you answer the question, we're, we're doing you know, this at a time of day. Maybe we should go straight to the martinis. Look, and, uh... I'm going to say this, and you all understand this clearly because you all both have strong personalities. There were a lot of individuals with very strong personalities and very strong opinions of what we needed to do uh, in terms of coming up with the president's agenda and passing the president's agenda. Now, to that, I will say that President Trump was always the ultimate decider. He was the one that would bring us all in. We could we had different opinions, different advisors would... Uh, go in with our arguments and you could be the one sitting in the room in the Oval Office and the one that you're saying, please don't pick on me, please don't pick on me. And then he'll look over and say, Mercedes, what do you think? You don't get to hide in the corner. There is no hiding in the corner. Now, Matt, or hiding have, in the curtains. Did, you, did you have to... Curtains. Uh, Jim, Jim, Comey Jim Comey famously said, I tried to hide in the blue curtains in the blue room and the president <laughs> called him forth. So did you have to uh, do any nighttime therapy when she came home from the White House? Oh, yeah, my Lord. job was to have the bottle of red wine open, uh, <laughs> poured on many days. And uh, look, it was a great experience because uh, I think for Mercy and I, uh, 
we've kind of always done things together. We met at the Bush White House, and uh, obviously the 2004 reelection campaign was a big deal. We had worked on the 2000 campaign, um, and then we started a business together uh, after we left the White House. With Cove Strategies. Uh-huh, Cove yeah. Strategies. Yeah. And, uh, and the Trump uh, campaign in 2016 was very much kind of interwoven in our marriage uh, with our kids. It was obviously a controversial political moment. Uh, we lost dozens of really close friends from the Bush era who were disgusted the over never, our, the never Trumpers. Yeah, disgusted. I don't I, I don't know yeah. if all of them were never Trumpers, but they were disgusted that we had kind of in their view turned their back on establishment republicanism to uh, support uh this whole kind of new approach to politics, this this uh disruption in the order. Uh and uh that became Donald Trump. And uh you know, so we kind of felt like it was us against the world a lot of times. It was, uh, mm -hmm. you know, people making snide comments. I remember walking into a cocktail party in Philadelphia and having a group of people I'd known for a decade or more uh, all talking and laughing and then, you know, having a serious conversation. And I walked up and uh, literally the conversation just stopped. It was like the record player went. Whoop. And it was so well, I, obvious I, they were either talking about me or Trump or Oh. horrible people like me and i realized it was a real eye-opener for me it's like because i've always been included in washington as one of the you know the people in the club or whatever and i realized wow they're kicking me out well, of both, the club both. and it felt terrible and great all well, at the same both, time both you and mercy bring a real a real world view to all this though because you work with the fortune 100 companies with cove strategies i mean you're in the c-suite you know what people are thinking and that that's unusual uh in this town. Now, you say you keep red wine open when she came home. Now, this wasn't Cuban wine, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, we do Cuban espresso usually at 3 o'clock in the, the afternoon. The communists in Cuba have destroyed uh, all their drinks. I don't think uh, their coffee is as good anymore. Their cigars are definitely not as good anymore. So. But, you, but your, your father was a Cuban uh, dissident and uh, went up against Fidel Castro. That's right. So, And I think one of the reasons why I felt at an early age that I wanted to go into public service that I wanted to work in politics was because of my father's experience. Uh, he was a very successful businessman in Cuba. Uh, and when Fidel Castro came into power, uh, the, the dictatorship, they took away their business, his businesses. And so my father had two, two options, either be quiet and just follow the communist swell that was happening in Cuba or fight back. And my father, uh, joined a group of counter-revolutionaries and fought against the Castro regime, uh, ended up in jail for six years. And so he taught me at a young age that, first of all, love America. Amer America is a very special place. And always remember that you have a responsibility to protect our freedoms and our democracy because this democracy is fragile and you can lose it in an instant. And so I knew at that point, and I'm talking, I mean, at 15 years old, I said, I'm going to need, I want to go to Washington and try to make a difference here uh, and work in politics. And, and it's where my life has led me. It led me to my husband, where we met at the White House. And I feel very strongly as we talk to our youth, you know, or talk to our daughters and talk to our daughter's friends, that there, there is this real sense that we can lose America. Well, I think the word fragile is a big, the, the right word. I mean, people under, civilization is kind of a thin veneer. Yes. And the Constitution's a piece of paper to a lot of people that doesn't mean much. And you take away all the 
civilizing influences and the role of the Constitution, you don't end up with something that's very privy. Well, and we're dealing with, um, right now, academic institutions that are basically brainwashing our youth, yeah. where it is talking about, uh, you know, from issues of, for example, teaching sex education for to middle schoolers on how to use a condom, for example, uh, in different school districts, or this issue where you have 36 different genders. I mean, there is this sense of pushing these liberal ideas in our public school systems and not giving choices to parents for them to say, wait a second, I don't really feel comfortable with my kid going to school here. Let me put them in a different school, in a Catholic school, in a Christian school. Where, where are your kids in school now? They're in private school. They're in Catholic school. Yeah. All of them. That We have two in high school and, and three uh, in what I guess you would call middle school. So, so it becomes, as a parent, uh, you know, it's, it's troubling to see that you have our academic institutions really taken on this liberal agenda across the board. And it starts when they're young, when you're able to influence and, and, and talk to them about the realities of, uh, of, of, you know, just even a conservative agenda or even talking about the dangers of socialism, which are very real now in the United States, something we haven't seen, you know. So my, my theory on back. this is, I don't know if you agree with me, but I think you do, which is liberals don't really create anything, right? Socialists don't create anything. It's entrepreneurs that create things. It's conservatives that create culture and create institutions. And then over time, uh, the parasites on the left are great at coming in there in an insidious way and taking them over. And conservatives kind of back back out. They're like, well, we started it. We got it going. Um, oh, they have their point of view. Maybe we should have multiple points of view. And they, they'll kind of recede. And the left comes in aggressively and completely takes it over. Bill, they've done it in almost every major institution in our society. This is not just public schools. This is private schools. This is churches. This is foundations. This is other institutions. And part of the Trump disruption is, damn it, no more. No more. I mean, we are, we are drawing a line in the sand. And by the way, our point of view matters as well. We are being pushed away from tables. We are being pushed out of rooms. We're being called haters, and we're being told to shut up and to back off, we paid for these institutions. We pay massive amounts of taxes for all of these public institutions, and this has to stop. You're watching The Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Matt and Mercy Schlapp, and we're talking about uh, the deconstruction of a lot of terrific American institutions and uh, what the two of them are doing to, uh, to fight back. Yeah, I think it's a time, it's a time to fight. And look, you know, uh, fighting has a lot of connotations to it. Now, now let's let's put this in the framework of what you do when you're chairman of American Conservative right. Union and, and run CPAC. I mean, what's how how is the ACU trying to bring about the, the the good things that we want to bring about? Well, I know you do a lot of this work with me. I'd love your point yeah, of let's view do, on yeah, it. Both of you. Oh, great. Well, uh, you know, I have enjoyed um, watching American Conservative Union and CPAC grow. I mean, it's become an international phenomenon, and Matt can speak more on this, but. It truly, uh, you have countries coming to us, uh, leaders of these countries coming to us saying, we love what you're doing with CPAC in the United States. Can we have some of that? Can you teach us how to organize from a grassroots perspective? Because they all feel there's several com components, and I'll say one story when we were in CPAC Brazil, that all of a sudden they would ramble, you know, start talking in Portuguese, and then all of a sudden they'll go, you know, blah, 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 and then they'll go, 
fake news and then everyone jumps <laughs> up you know and they're like yes do you speak portuguese no i don't no 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 interpreter needed no for fake news no, fake news <laughs> no interpreter English. needed for make america great yes. again they'll crowd they'll it around why because they're facing similar issues where yeah. they the media predicted that bolsonaro was never going to win who, now the current president of brazil they are the ones that have been incredibly critical of that president they are left left leaning and they're saying we need a voice we need an outlet like we don't need we don't have the you know several of these more conservative media outlets in their country so it's interesting how what we're experiencing here in the united states in these other nations they're very there's some similarities that we're and we're saying. talking about thousands of people thousands coming together in a foreign city to try to figure out what this whole conservative uh, movement is in America. So let me Trump be clear is. about this. You're running CPAC meetings in Brazil. You're yeah, we had CPAC five international meetings. I think CPACs. you also ran one in Hong Kong. Yep, we did. We ran one in Tokyo. We ran one in Seoul, South Korea. We ran one in Sydney, Australia. And these events were so successful that they want to annualize them. Well, so. tell me how you put one of these together. Well, <laughs> we started off in Japan, literally. Because ACU was doing none of this before you ACU, showed up. ACU, when I, when, when, uh, when What, has I, it been about five years? Yeah, five, six, six, six yeah. years. And, yeah. uh, and I, I have to give my predecessor credit because he had started to do battleground CPACs in, in the country. Yeah. But we've taken that concept and, you know, we're doing, we'll do CPACs in every battleground state next year, every uh, consequential state. But we, I, ran, I was walking down the halls of CPAC, Bill, where you and Sarah have been, and uh, this Japanese fellow walks up to me, this is five, six years ago, and says, hey, I started a Japanese conservative union. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. This man, Jay Aiba, who now has had three CPACs in Tokyo in a row, literally thousands of conservative Japanese coming together. Believe it or not, people will wear their MAGA hats. Some people will wear their MAGA hats to these international events. And we engage them in a conversation about what is conservatism, the dignity of the individual, and these practical solutions that can bring people. Now, now are these economic conservatives, social it's conservatives? It's I little... mean, here we have the Constitution. That's unique. It so is unique. If, you're, unique. if you're Japanese conservative, what are you conserving? The first step for most of these uh, conservatives in Japan is their fear of communist China. Okay. And that neighborhood, the reason why we've had so many CPACs in Asia, Bill, is because obviously they have an immediate connection to the fact that conservatives in America fight communism. We've always fought communism, as your father's experience right. was in Cuba. Uh, and the fact that uh, China is uh, such a danger in that neighborhood. So they, that we have immediate uh, credibility with Japanese conservatives. The second question is, you know, they've experienced, and you would know this, from your business career, decades, really a generation of economic stagnation, yeah. do what we don't we don't fully we don't fully understand over here is basically well, rampant Japan, socialism. Yeah, yeah Japan, Japan's been flatlined for That's a right. couple decades. Their government now. is too big; they tax yeah. too much. People can't afford uh, some of the you know kind of things to make their life better because taxation is what it is, and you know they're realizing that they need to find a different way. And in CPAC Brazil, just uh, their big focus was free markets. It was all about how do we improve trade relations with the United States. So it is all on the economic senses. It is about bringing prosperity to these countries and to the to their to their people. Now, do they have the issues with elites versus the rest of us oh, that yeah. we have in America? That seems like this is maybe oh. a. You look at Brexit. You look at what's all going on. Okay, I'm going to jump out of my chair. Jump out of your chair because <laughs> I I, it, it, I didn't realize this. We went to Australia. 
Uh, we had like Judge Pirro with us um, and uh, uh, some congressman with us, Nigel Farage, came down. And in the middle of CPAC Australia, okay, first of all, to start CPAC Australia, they tried to ban me, Dan Schneider, and Raheem Kassan from even being able to fly to Australia because Dan and I had the audacity to be life members of the NRA. And because we were then associated with gun violence, they tried to literally, this is a democracy, to prevent us from flying into Australia. Then we get there and parliament tries to pass a law to say we're, 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 that CPAC is breaking, uh, is actually a criminal enterprise in Australia. There's a lawsuit going on about this. Then I walk outside the event and there's a hundred crazy-looking Antifa protesters in Australia. So what I want the American Antifa listeners... Antifa in Australia. That's right. What I want the American listeners to understand is, is that yeah. this crazy idea of 56 and 32 genders and pushing the, the, this kind of crazy gender ideology on seven- and eight-year-olds here in America, this is alive and well in every major city on the globe. The Green New Deal and the idea that fossil fuels are immoral and that capitalism is a cancer. This is alive and well and very well funded by European and American left-wing billionaires all over the world. The same problems that we see us facing in the Commonwealth of Virginia or in America, they're in it's a bonding experience with these activists all over the world because they are facing the very same things. I'll give you an example in Brazil. We were there as a, as a guest of the Bolsonaro family, the president of Brazil and his son Eduardo. He was explaining to me that fourth graders have aggressive sexual education, right? We can all have a conversation about what a, a, a more mature person needs to learn in terms of sexual uh, information, but we have a, a, a daughter in fourth grade. And How old are your girls? Well, we have they five. Range, so, so 16 we, to seven. But I mean, a fourth grader bill. <laughs> yeah. Getting uh, get, getting detailed descriptions on how to orally satisfy either a male or a female lover is child abuse. This is something for parents to determine what they do. It's not for school systems. So I said to him, I was I'm, like, I'm, how do you stop that? He said, we have three-year contracts mm -hmm. with these big corporate textbook companies. We can do nothing to stop this until we get to the third year. He said, well, one year into it, in two years, all those textbooks are coming out. And they're going to learn math, and they're going to learn history, and they're going to learn English, and we're going to let parents. How are they going churches... to do that, though? Because people who try to change education, you get textbook publishers, you get the curriculum developers, you've got the teachers' colleges, you've got this whole group of people who are thriving with the existing system. How do you pull the textbooks? Well, I'm not going to tell you that I have the absolute game plan, but I will tell you in Brazil. <clears throat> One of the reasons why Bolsonaro is the president, one of the reasons why Trump is the president here, and even if Trump doesn't fully understand it, is the idea that not even conservatives, just ordinary common sense people are, are repelled by this aggressive, radical stuff that's going on in schools and in these institutions. So all I can tell you is that there's a SOS, there's a white flag, there's a cry for help, and there's, there's the resulting political success of those who are saying no more. And I think to President Trump's credit, it is because he is the fighter, right? It is because he speaks up. He's not silenced. He speaks up for those individuals who have felt for too long that identity politics is what uh, is in play and they have to be careful of what they say or how they say things. And for President Trump, he's about, look, he's going to speak his mind. And I think for it resonates with so many Americans who for too long 
feel like they have to be silenced. I mean, we're seeing this on college campuses where the conservative kids feel that they have to be quiet and they cannot speak up and say, I'm a Trump supporter, for example, or because they'll be bullied. And so we are, what, what is worrisome with where the left is going is that they want to, you know, when Hillary Clinton said the word deplorable, mm -hmm. they want us to feel like we are lesser than less than them that we how can we not agree with what what they are saying how can we not agree with their beliefs and and quite frankly i think for everyday americans they're like i just want to live my life and raise my family and do what i can to help my community and you know and, and by leave the way, me they, alone you they know, have the values that made us great yes exactly the left is trying to undermine when, all of that. when beto <laughs> sorry when when beto or you're watching gotta, you're watching a break. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are fox experts you know. yeah. you're watching the bill walton show and i'm here with matt and mercedes schlapp and we're talking about really a worldwide phenomena of pushback against elites and some some very bad and, and uh, toxic ideas well, we have to give you all the Fox hand signals. So one of them is oh, I need Fox the Chris hand Wallace Please. hand signal is like, the, like, come on, wrap it up. Okay. You're tiring me. Okay. Let's go. So we'll teach you some of these. Okay. Can... Right. No, but wrap I think, you okay. know, right. Matt had a, an experience. I, we, we bring up Hong Kong as being one of those, I it's think, very moving. Yeah. eye-opening experiences. Obviously, as a wife, I was very concerned that Matt or anyone from the CPAC uh crew would get arrested when when, so, were you, when were you in hong kong right at the beginning of all this but so. what was the timing i'm <laughs> sorry i'm so bad at remembering it was august it was august yeah. it was august so. and the uh and you know the protests have been going on for a while but really westerners had not been invited and there was a bit of a controversy about whether they really wanted westerners because you know they've approached these protests with diffuse leadership there's not one leader when they had the umbrella revolution of 2014 bill they were able to decapitate uh the protest by taking out its leaders so and, and they also wanted it to be they wanted it to be hong kong and you remember there was a time when they would have said chinese but they don't say chinese anymore they say hong kong they're hong kongers they basically want their own most of them want their own independent entity some of them want complete independence from china but the but the fact that americans actually took to the streets and we went to two protests uh, with the students and with with these mostly young people. And uh, the first day, you know, some of the Hong Kongers were a little, some were disgruntled that we were there. And of course, the communists have completely infiltrated as well. There are spies everywhere. And by the second day, it was it was really so gratifying because I, I, I look very American. Obviously, I have big white hair. I'm taller than most of the people there. And uh, and all these... You're taller than most of my family, <laughs> right. too. Let's these well, people if would walk up to me. Somebody had to say yeah. Kansas and Notre Dame. Yeah. yeah. They might yeah. conjure you yeah. up. That's right. Exactly. That's right. The, uh, so these these young uh, Hong Kongers would walk up to me, and they'd be like, uh, and it was it was so moving to hear. They said, could you please go back to America and tell your president that we appreciate him because the first time in 30 years we have an American president who's fighting mm -hmm. the communists in Beijing. And they felt such a kinship with Americans. Now, the secondary thing they did to me is at the second night, we were right across from the police station and they had their, you know, they had their weapons out pointed at the crowd and they kept putting up these warning signs saying they were going to start shooting. Now, that could be rubber bullets. That can be, you know, a tear gas. It can be different things, but they've shot people too. And uh, and so we were very close. We were right across the street and it, we had we were there with some other Americans, some supporters of CPAC. And it's unnerving. And I can't tell you how many people I had once again, young, mostly young people, although it's all ages, but it's mostly young people coming up and saying, we're going to, they'd communicate via these interesting apps. And they'd say, we're going to start moving a block here. We're going to move 
back, you know, 20 feet or whatever. Like, so they're constantly communicating. And the one thing they kept saying to me is, we're very worried about you. And I'd say, why? They were like, well, you stand out. And when they start shooting, you have to run really fast. And I was like, oh, okay, I got it. And then another guy would come to me and say, no, when I say you have to run fast, like you're gonna have to run fast and we're worried you can't run fast. So I was like, <laughs> you just wait till that moment happens. I was like, I won't be running. I can't run for a long period of time, but I can do a quick burst here. So you're gonna use your tennis player skills. Exactly. <laughs> I can run from the net to the baseline and then I'll be tired. But the, but. <laughs> but the bigger story here, and this is the, the message I think for our youth as well, is that, you know, they've got 28 years. Just think about it. In 28 years, they're these 18-year-olds, 20-something-year-olds are looking at their lives and saying, we're going to be under Chinese communism. They're going to face if what your earlier. dad would have faced if in Cuba. If not earlier, yes. They're going to be, they are going to lose their freedom to, the freedom of speech, their freedom to practice their religion. They're going to be, they're going to, from an entrepreneurship. The, the, the 28 years is what? Is when that's when, when the deal, when the deal, the deal, the deal ends. Yep. Okay. Yes. And the commies yes. can completely take over Hong yes. Kong. Well, so, the Chinese Communist Party absolutely wants to take both Hong Kong and Taiwan. Totally. Yes. Completely. Totally. It's it's full reign. And so, but thinking about where these young people, they're looking at their future and it's bleak. And because they know that they're going to lose, they're going to lose their rights. And, and I, and I, and I say that because I think it's important to understand where we are as a country. I mean, are we at a point that it's going to be, we're going to turn towards this you're if you're conservative, if you're, uh, you know, you're not allowed to speak up. I mean, are we going to move into a do we have that 28 direction? years well, in yeah. America? Well, well, do we have the language to communicate with people? Because if you look at what happened in Virginia, Virginia, we know we're close to it, but most people may not. Virginia was a red straight 25 years ago. And it's not governor, both senators, both both houses of the legislature are now pretty significantly uh, Democrat. and But there are two things going on. One, the demographics have changed in Virginia enormously. I think they were in Fairfax County, for example, you had 3% agents 20 years ago, now it's, now it's 20%. Mm -hmm. So that's one factor, demog demography. And then the other one is just sort of, I think we've lost our ability to message our ideas. Well, and it's sad when you think that. And, and we've got to message our ideas to different looking people that don't look, you know, they don't look like they came from Kansas and went right. to Notre Dame. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, first, I think it's very unfortunate what we've seen in Virginia, because when you have the governor and the lieutenant governor, basically, I mean, talk about they've had a disastrous last year uh, through Lieutenant Governor Fairfax's alleged sexual uh, harassment case, cases and allegations. And then you've also had uh, Governor Northrop between blackface and then his extreme position on abortion. You would think that they would be just isolated. I have isolated. a theory on the blackface, but keep going. But what, you know, what I'm saying is, is that, first of all, I, I feel that there is a, a need to re almost revamp the Virginia Republican Party to a certain extent. Um, I think that you're right when it comes to messaging, because we should be winning on messaging. Uh, we, and, you know, I've done Hispanic outreach for over 20 years. Uh, I did it back under George W. Bush and and understand that community. And it's and for us, the, the message for the Hispanic community is very simple. They're more aligned with us when it comes to values. And they're more, you know, when it, when you talk about the economy and you talk about opportunity, they listen. They want to know more. Uh, but the Democrats have done a more effective job to a certain extent of really going into the communities and gaining their support early, 
early on in the well, process. My theory about the blackface is I think that that was engineered almost on purpose because that we were going to kill him on the abortion question. What he said about the baby, well, we'll... We'll keep it. We'll, we'll keep it, we'll the keep, baby comfortable. Keep the baby comfortable. Right. I and thought we. Said, I thought we. I thought we had a winning and issue. Bill, he's with a that. Pediatric, and they changed the subject. He's a pediatric surgeon. So when he says, "I know what happens in these cases," I actually think he does know what happens in those cases. Culturally, though, where's 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 uh, the Hispanic Latino community on on abortion? You know, they trend towards being more pro life. I think, especially when it comes to the you know <laughs> abortion. At 40 weeks, they would you would find a vast majority of them agree, as do most Americans, that they they wouldn't agree with that. Uh, they they would probably be more supportive of a 20 week ban. Um, but you find that they're you know they're usually churchgoers. They want to protect their they, they want to make sure that they're able to practice their religion freely. And in addition to that, I think you find that they're more pro life. But remember, we lost in in Fairfax too, and we lost in Virginia in the suburban areas. So it's the woman voter that we also need to message to. And you look at this election, obviously, in Virginia, it's on, it's early on in the year in terms of uh, an, an off presidential election year. Uh, it, the Democrats are, have been better organized in Virginia than we have. I don't think we did and enough of invest. We haven't invested. Well, we kept hearing that between the school boards and all these delegate races, Soros was throwing money in there. He was. We don't have that on the, on, on the Republican side. And I think that hurt our chances but of winning. Bill, remember, our billionaires who are supposedly on the right, on the conservative side, most of them, when they get pressure and they get it, they walk away. And then they try to do virtue signaling so they can still get invited to the cocktail party in the Hamptons or so their kids, you know, well, aren't you, made you, fun you, of in you school. You saw what the Business Roundtable did with the uh, stakeholder values and corporations. Yeah. They said, well, we don't think we ought to just be working for shareholders. We ought to be working... For all our community, which means you're working against shareholders, just so we're clear, you can't that, do both. That would be, it, it's clear to me, but it's very yeah. clear, right? And and then Elizabeth Warren took that up and she took it seriously, and now they're then now they've even doubled down the pressure on the corporation. So they virtue signaled; they thought they were going to buy people off with this statement. Didn't work. Look at corporate America. We have, uh, you know, a president who worked with Republicans in Congress, and it was Republicans in Congress, to pass the most consequential reduction in corporate income taxes and other tax treatments that we've certainly seen in my 51 years of life. And uh, literally, literally, if you went down the top 500 corporations in America, how many of them really uh, fund Republican uh, politicians? I'd say very few. Um, I think most of them tend to be left-leaning. So even though the policies, the deregulatory policies, the tax policies coming out of the most Republicans are beneficial to these corporations, they would rather choose politicians that would harm their company for some other purpose, and, and, I and, and, and we speak from firsthand experience here. Right. I mean, you, your, your consulting firm works with the, these corporations and how to deal with what's going on in Washington. What's your, what do they... What's a typical CEO well, like? Well, obviously, one of these all big my companies? clients are perfect and wonderful, and these are really. Uh, <laughs> Let's talk about the people that don't. <laughs> talk hire about you. the people I don't. <laughs> how about the people that I get to watch? Okay. You know, uh, and what I would say is, is that what I'm seeing is, is that look in the 1950s, your typical American CEO would most likely be a uh, a wasp, uh, you know, a churchgoer who's a Republican. 
who probably has fairly conservative kind of pro-family views on most issues that would have been socially acceptable, maybe even socially expected. Uh, and that is completely flipped. So you're Typical CEO today, if they are conservative, they are completely closeted in their political views, that they are told by their general counsels, who mostly would have gone to an Ivy League uh, law school, that they can't have Christian views on things like uh, family issues, life, marriage, etc., because that puts you in the hater category. Uh, you'll be anti-woman. You can't manage people if you have those views. So, uh, and then their HR directors, which is a whole other kettle of fish, which is very, you know, they tend to be very left-wing, all their trade associations are. So all the influences around the And their CEO, foundations. Yes. And then you have these foundations, which were almost all started yeah. by conservatives. So you look at the Pew Foundation bill, of which I know you've read a lot about. Uh, it has been explained to me that the Pew, Mr. Old Man Pew funded Billy Graham's first crusade. He had he invited Billy Graham over to his house, and he said uh, when he uh, Billy Graham was told when he was done with dinner to look under his plate, and that was the first check for the first crusade. The Pew Foundation today now funds every left wing thing you could ever imagine, and so what's happened with this corporate culture is that all of us who are buying the products are going along with this idea that America expects corporations to fund the left, because as conservatives and as consumers. We just want to get the cup of coffee and get out of there. But what, I, what I've increasingly realized is, is that if, I'm not a boycott guy, but we should express our views on what we think. And my advice to uh, when asked by CEOs on how you handle the political change, my advice to them is to run their company and leave the culture to the people and to their consumers and to their clients and to the people in society. Let them determine where, where the culture is going to be. It is not corporate America's job to, you know, to to uh, to lead the charge and all of this left wing change. You're, and, obvi you're obviously not advising Google. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. That would be accurate. Because <laughs> you know we had a we had somebody on Dr. Robert Epstein, and they, they unearthed a video inside Google. Oh, mm -hmm. have you heard about that? Mm -hmm. and, yes. It, where it's meant for internal consumption. It talks yeah. about how they want to. They want to make Google's values America's values, yep. and they want to use the search engine to bring that about. You, you, are you familiar yeah, with that? Yeah, I'm very familiar with that. And, and I think that's where you enter into the danger zone, which is so much of the corporate influence on our, on our society. And we depend on products like, you know, a service engine like Google. Uh, I think, you know, my, my seven-year-old would have said Google when she was like five. You know, it's part of the vocabulary. It's kind of like Facebook. It's, And so, you know, you see this with the challenges, for example, even now when Twitter has said, okay, we're not going to do any political ads because they know that they're up against the Trump machinery when it comes to these political ads. And so that becomes, you know, the, it just shows how much power the, the corporations have in being able to influence public opinion. Right now, we're in the game of influencing public opinion. This is why we're seeing the impeachment hearings on the Hill right as we speak, because the Democrats know, for example, that they need to put on a show and that they got to move public opinion to try to, uh, to, to, to derail this president uh, because they can't win in the election, you, you know, election year against the president. But I think when you look at these corporations, it's the same thing. It's how can you influence mm -hmm. public opinion? And that's, I think, something that, you know, raises concern. 
You're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with a very delightful and entertaining Matt Schlapp and Mercy Schlapp, and we're talking about the role of corporations in America today, in the world, in fact, and we're about to talk about the Trump campaign and what we think is going to happen in 2020. Schlapp. Mercy, you're, uh, <laughs> you're pretty close to that. Yes. You're, you're you know, we, I have to say, I'm working at the campaign. Brad Parscale, talk about someone who understands. Now, Brad Parscale is that other guy from Kansas. He's the other six guy from Kansas. He's a taller he's kid. So six tall. foot, six yes. foot 12. Uh, he is a, he's actually a very brilliant guy. He's a person who understands marketing, uh, social media, uh, and numbers uh, expertly. And he's a fascinating guy to talk to. I think, like everything Trump has done, sometimes he makes decisions, you scratch your head, you're like, what is he thinking? Brad's not a particularly political person. He'd be the first person to say that. But he's somebody who understands the new field that campaigns will be fought on. Right. And I think he also understands, um, you know, he talked to us about the simplicity of messaging. It was one of the topics we had a conversation with him uh, just yesterday. And it's and really for Brad, what he's been able to do is build out a very sophisticated, uh, not only marketing online campaign, but uh, a, a, a strong political team, a strong communications team, and uh, really building out this huge volunteer network system across this country where you have those people who go to the rallies, who maybe went to vote 2016, but now is saying, wait a second, I want to do more. I want to help the president get reelected. I mean, the fact that the president is able, whenever a rally is, is scheduled, you're talking about 70,000 RSVPs in less than 24 hours easily. I mean, it, it We've is, never seen this in politics. This is, exactly. We talk about this all the time. This is that. something so, we so don't... So Trump decides to go to Baton Rouge. Right. Quickly. Told the rally. So how does that, how does, how does it, how does that, how does that come about? Well, I, you know, it, it, obviously they do a lot of the marketing through the website. They do a lot of the marketing through local media, through ad buys down there saying President Trump is coming. But before you know it, it is tens of thousands, t tens of thousands of people who will RSVP. And you only have 20,000 seats, for example, or 30,000 seats. And so it is remarkable to watch the energy that this Co president compare brings. Compare it to what's going on on the Democratic side in the venues they can't fill or the Republican campaigns we've been involved in the past where you're really trying to find a smaller venue uh, because you really can't. It's hard to get much. You know, if you get 10,000 people. Uh, that's a big crowd for a president. Elizabeth and, Warren just had fifteen hundred people. Yeah, and uh, and Mark <laughs> Sanford just had one person. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, so like you have all of these examples where they just you know they'll have a big big stage bill. You you do the stagecraft. They have a big big stage, and then if you ever get the pan out of the crowd, it's like you know it's uh, fifteen feet deep. It's like there's not too many people there. Right. So this dynamic of the rally, by the way. 30% of them at many of these rallies are Democrats. Mm -hmm. So this is something that doesn't get covered because it scares the left. No, no. But there's a the lot first, of... This is the first time I've ever heard oh, that. Yeah. 30% yeah, yeah. oh, yes. of Democrats? Yes. So this is not just a spontaneous thing where people just show up. You sign up. You have to give them some information about who you are. And they know who's a Republican, who's an independent, who's a Democrat. It's very skewed independent and Democrat. Now, these, Unlike anything we've ever are seen Are these in Republican Democrats politics. that expect to vote for Donald Trump? Well, the goal is to get them there to vote. Obviously, registering the voters is critical. But they're showing up because it's such an amazing thing to be part and of. And they like well, Trump. And they like Trump. Yeah. And, and, but you're, they're not your average Republican voter. I guess that's the way to describe it. You have your voters that go to every single, every year they, or every two years, they'll go vote. Um, they, you know, think about it. When what we've seen, the dynamic that we see in a lot of these states is 
In 2016, for example, you had 8.5 million more people that were Trump voters that went out to vote that really never voted before. So when 2018 happened, which was the midterm elections, those 8 million people, they stayed home. They didn't vote. Why? Because they voted because Donald Trump was on the ticket, not because Joe, Congressman Joe Schmo was on the ticket. And they've seen a Republican Congress, quite frankly, sometimes not be as aggressive as they would like them that to be. Is They're true. Like, what does it matter so, if the Democrats so, so run the House? So 17, 18, 19, those were the three elections. Trump was not on the ballot. Right. That would be correct. So think even looking at Virginia, That's I mean, right. Virginia is a little trickier as I think it's more <clears> complex. But it, it, there is a sense of those Trump voters who just stay home because they want to vote for Trump, but they're not necessarily convinced with Republican establishment. They're not necessarily convinced with Republican local candidates. But the, that's the problem that we're seeing. They have to realize that if it doesn't trickle down, we lose the most Bill, important say, elections, which are the local elections as well. Like, we need to make sure well, we have what, Republicans. That's what Soros on. is targeting. That is let, me, right. let me add something more here, which is, what what's up is down. It's a little we're in a moment where truth is dead, right? Because there is fake news and what's being reported as truth is not truth. Think about this. Trump has the highest numbers with Republicans than any Republican president in my 51 years. He has the highest numbers with them. And we've just explained to you that when it comes to the rallies and his grassroots appeal, he has the highest numbers of Democrats and independents coming to his events than any Republican we have ever seen. Right. Certainly in the age of this kind of divide that we're in, how is it that all of the reporting is about how his numbers are so bad and he's in such a weakened position with these two facts? It makes no sense. And, uh, well, that, well, that's what I wondered about. I open with this is that we've got the conservatives, we've got Republicans they are not really necessarily the same people. And then we've got Trump. And yeah, but all the press coverage is on the Republicans who actually really aren't Republicans. They're swamp creatures. So back to the Virginia question, I would say the biggest dynamic that's happened in Virginia is the expansion of government, the expansion of the swamp. The swamp recruits from blue for from blue areas for blue people to take these jobs. Blue people? And to, I didn't know there was blue people. Well, people swamp. that tend to trend blue politically, and they, <laughs> and they uh, there are blue people. Blue Be careful. people is when you don't you've have just oxygen. Offend, just <laughs> you've just offended somebody. The, uh, there's the guy who took it's too much truth. silver. I don't know. But the, um, but the, You're but, right. Somewhere, somewhere. Somebody's going to be offended by that. So, so the, oh, po I'm sure. the point is, is that if you look at all of that and you actually cover, if you just put your analytical cap on, you look politically, the people that really understand politics in this country, Bill, they think Trump is going to win. And that's why you have people like Hillary Clinton and Deval Patrick and, and Eric Holder and talking about and running. And that's why we need to impeach him. That's right. That is it's actually logical. reason number one. It's actually logical. So why don't win. we just say it the way it is? Adam Schiff has to have the Schiff whiff because it's the only way to quote unquote stop him. They've tried everything. Shop, you can start a nursery rhyme with that. The well, shift with. You guys right. Say that 10 times yeah. quickly. Oh, say, say what are you in the shift with? with. <laughs> that could get that could be problematic. <laughs> that could be problematic. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so the, does the impeachment help or hurt? I think it helps Trump. I don't think. Well, right now, I think most people look through this. Right now, what we're seeing from fundraising numbers is that it, it's hugely helping us from fundraising perspective, from small dollar donors basically saying, "I'm mad. This is this is not right. What they're doing to my president, and I'm giving money." So we have seen just even the enthusiasm from our supporters, just saying, 
we will do what we can to fight for this president. And like, if, it is the fight of our time. And, and, the, the, and, and if you went to central casting and you wanted to say, well, let's pick somebody to lead our movement, and you came up with Adam Schiff. <laughs> I, I know. Mean, I mean, what, I call a bad, him, what a bad face. You might remember this. I call him Don Knotts. That's what he sure. reminds me oh, of. Yeah, Every absolutely. time I see him, the Barney Fife <laughs> of uh, Democratic politics. Well, well yeah. it's, you know, I, I wish, think... I wish you were as funny as Barney. Yes, that's right. I wish what, it was funny. The problem becomes is that I think the American people, they hear the word impeachment, and but they don't... It might. There's so many details to it, so many different witnesses that only the Democrats are able to put up. You know, they don't... They haven't allowed Republicans to come up with their own subpoena, their own witnesses. It is a one-sided, unfair process. End of story. This is very clear that, that, that Nancy Pelosi said she didn't, she, she didn't want this to be a partisan impeachment. Well, guess what, Nancy? It's a partisan impeachment. Uh, you, you know, so it is, it really, I think, for the Democrats will backfire politically. I think they're trying so hard. We're going to keep talking about this swaying public opinion. That's their goal. They want to create doubt in the minds of the American people to say President Trump is, should not be president, right? He should be impeached. And they're going to keep doing this. And they have so many of the media outlets that back, that back them up and will continue for 24 hours just talking about this impeachment process, just like the same way they've done with the Russian hoax, which we know at the end of the day, there was nothing there. There was nothing there that was that they could the, use against the, the president. The Russia investigation, the Mueller investigation, had nothing to do with Russia. The impeachment uh, investigation has nothing to do with crimes or an impeachment. These are all fights. They're proxy fights. It's a battle for the soul of the country. It's a battle for whether or not a conservative or a patriot or someone who mm -hmm. understands America's yeah. founding still has a voice in our country. If we don't fight these battles and win them, even when they're a little bit ugly, we will not recognize our country. You're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Mercy and Matt Schlapp, and we're talking about Donald Trump, impeachment, and why we think impeachment might help reelect Donald Trump. Well, that, and it, it depends if it's, you know, these you see these Democrat candidates just so weakened uh, that when you are talking about Bloomberg going into the race or Hillary Clinton or Deval Patrick, they're, well, they're well, unsettled well, with their well, own... Well, that's an issue. I mean, the, the scenario that people are saying, well, the House votes... 218, whatever, to impeach, and then goes to the Senate. The Senate, somebody moves to dismiss it. That doesn't happen. Then the Senate votes. Trump wins. So, but they may not have the 218 votes. That's because right. Because how many districts did? Uh, 24 districts that that they that you had these Democrats who won where Trump won basically. Yeah. They're Trump districts where now you have these temp, uh, Democrat members, House members. So 24 won. I think it's up to 30 current incumbents, including ones that were in Congress before that are in Trump districts. So it's quite a lot who, uh, you know, Trump is very popular in these districts. And if they vote to impeach him with no crime, imagine that, no crime, but yet they vote to impeach him so they can stop him. Uh, that's a hard thing to go back into your public library and argue in a town hall. The electoral map, does that help us, hurt us in 2020? I think we're in a jump ball. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we've gone through the states uh, and, uh, you know, we got some we got some do or die states. We got states like North Carolina and Florida that um, and even Texas, people get a little worried about with the purple aspect of Texas, which and Texas uh, has a tendency could be, could become more like Virginia. That's right. So but but by right. the same token, I think, look, the way Republicans view politics, it's kind of like how when we were talking about the Commonwealth of Virginia, we are all. Most of us come from politics from a very logical standpoint. 
We've done practical, logical things in our professional lives, and we worry about where we're not doing as well. But I would posit something else. There's real opportunity. Donald Trump won that electoral vote in Maine. That was no accident. The Bushes were in Maine forever. Donald Trump got the electoral vote, right? We, were in, we did a CPAC in Minneapolis. I tell you, those people are on fire in, in Minnesota. We have almost won Minnesota, not only last time, but previously. It's never on the targeted list. We never give it much love or attention. Minnesota is very flippable. What, what Donald Trump did in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, so he did something very novel. He listened to what people in communities wanted to see from their government. He listened. We didn't tell them what the Republican view was. We listened to them about what would solve their problems. And he did that very uniquely. And I think it's why he flipped those states. Yeah. And again, these states are, everything is so close. I mean, Pennsylvania, I think we won by only about 44,000 yep. votes. You look at Michigan, you look at Ohio. Um, and Ohio, I think we're in a much stronger position. But of course, we're going to spend a lot of time. We're going to target the, these Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota. I know we've talked about also uh, looking and spending time in those states. And it's more so it's saying, how can you, you know, we don't, we don't want it to be as close. We want to expand our lead, especially when you look at states like Pennsylvania, which it's tricky. I mean, this last election, we lost, uh, you know, we lost some seats. in the. This but Donald Trump is there. such a unique person. You said central casting, Bill. I don't know if you meant that he is or not from central casting, but he is what he is. He is a unique, rugged American. He does things his way. He doesn't always listen to the people around him about the right way to market this or that. He has his own gut that he follows, and it's a pretty good gut. It's a gut that gets him to 50. He's not the kind of guy, I think, that gets to 60, 62, 63, because he's so idiosyncratic. He's such an individual. What makes people love him and a lot of people in this country love him, is also the same thing. It makes a lot of people hate him. And he, he will have to deal with the fact that in politics, he goes right to the division. And I would just say that all of the other ways that the Mitt Romneys and the Marco Rubios and the other people that have tried to give this a go around, this kind of sweet talking, soft talking, walking through minefields carefully, that is a loser. That will not work with the way we are divided as a country because well, I, I, we didn't wake up to what we were fighting and, and, until about three and, years and, and ago. And you and I, you and I have talked about the way, the way to win is go directly to the controversy. Mm -hmm. Is to just to go right up, go right to, to it, it, and say, okay. And what are your values? And and what would you do to make things better? And and he thinks about it uh, in a unique way as well. I mean, you look at criminal justice reform. It was a bipartisan uh, bipartisan legislation. Obviously, we know that that's something that impacts the African-American community greatly. You're talking about one in three African-American men end up in jail. And so he really felt that this was an important issue to tackle. I mean, we were just uh, inside a prison we last did week. Prison. We did CPAC prison, uh, which was very moving for, 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 for both of us uh, to be there and being able to talk about, guess what? It, when, if, you're a, if, you have, if you're getting out of jail, there are economic opportunities for you. There are people willing to hire you. I mean, we're seeing unemployment for, for ex-offenders um, down right now. That's right. Wait, wait, wait. CPAC prison. prison? We went to CPAC prison. Where, where, we were where in, was CPAC we, prison? In uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Chester, in Pennsylvania. Chester, Pennsylvania. At a, we at were a in Lancaster. At a, we at a, at a, Lancaster, Lancaster, <coughs> at a federal, at a federal penitentiary. It was a state-run state. penitentiary. Okay, state. All right. but, no, but, but here's the deal. Invited by the Secretary of Corrections, the warden, the supervisor, welcomed up 
welcomed us with open arms. Bill, listen to this. CPAC, with a big CPAC banner that the prisoners fashioned. Yeah. It was a beautiful banner. We gave them our point of view on what could actually make their lives better. It was very practical. We didn't open up tomes of research. We talked to them about how tomorrow they could start to do things so that when they get out of there, and most of the people in that room are going to get out of there one day, that when they get out of there, they can take care of the people they love without government assistance, and they can get a job, and they can find dignity, and they can, they can live their American life. Those prisoners cheered and clapped. And one guy, as I walked in, he said, Matt, what are you doing here? We don't understand what you're here. And I said, we're here because we don't know exactly why we're here. Well, I'm, it I'm sounds glad, a little I'm, bit I'm glad you made it out of there. It, exactly. No, that's a good point. And we brought our daughter, too. And, and he said, he said, why are you so, here? So, so what resonated? I mean, what did you well, say? Let me, let me tell you. Let okay. me tell you the answer. So he said, well, why are you here? And I said, well, we're going to learn together. And so we talked to them about we had, we had a guy who runs uh, uh, an HR trade association who talked about how you do well in job interviews. We had a body language expert that taught them how you turn off people immediately in a job interview. We had people explain to them the extent to which there are so many, there are millions of jobs. And in you don't show up Trump in a, for economy. an interview in a hoodie. All of this right, stuff, right, all, all the that. practical things. Dress also, for success. By you would know this as an entrepreneur it was a lot about they have they have ideas. Yeah. And they want to figure out how they market them. So this guy said that that guy who asked me as I walked in, what are you doing here? I said to him as I walked away from him, I said, look, tell us how we did. And as I was walking out, he was rocking back in his chair. He had a beard mustache. And he looked at me in the eyes. He said, hey, Matt, that was good. We were there all day. We did this all day long. And uh, the, and the response from the prisoners was overwhelming. Now, look, there's some bad guys in that, in that room who I don't want to ever get out of prison. I'm not going to open up the doors and let everybody be out, guy. But we ought to get practical over the fact that a lot of these people are coming back out into society. And they're coming back out with no skills. They're did, not did ready to Did you talk come. about faith at all? Absolutely. Yo, let me tell you, you can't not talk about Jesus in a prison. You can't not talk about it. Yeah. It just comes up. Every, we had so many presenters who used to be in that very facility, Bill. We had a guy who was in that very facility. He turned his life around, and now he's a minister. We, we have to wrap up here, but there was a business that we owned that did uh, re, helped, uh, what's the word, bringing prisoners back into society, yeah, re, re, uh, re-entry, re- whatever. There's a bigger word for that. There's but a anyway, lot of lingo. It was extremely successful. And we got into trouble with the New Jersey state prison authorities because the program was based on faith. And it went in, and um, among other yeah, things. But it was a very it's... Christian program. And the, the left got a hold of that and said, well, you know, we can't be using uh, hey, Bill, Christianity. The, the dirty little secret on reentry and the dirty little secret on recovering from drugs and alcohol. You know, yeah. the programs that tend to work are the programs that tell you that God loves you and has a plan for you. Well, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, exactly. Anonymous is based on uh, is based Totally. On Just and you disguised. don't even have to believe in God to look at the scientific data that tells you when people believe in a higher power that cares for them and wants the best for them and has a plan for them and created them uniquely to be on this earth to make a difference, you can't look at that data and not say that's what works. Well, I hate to do this, but we're run out of time. This is the quickest hour. I feel like we've got quickest feel, hour. Do we get to move on to dinner now? And I, I do. We're, I'm, I've got page after page of things we got to cover. But anyway, you'll come back. We'll continue the conversation. A lot to cover. We ended up on a great note, though, the role of faith in, uh, in uh, making people's lives better. That's it for now. Thank you for joining us. And we will see you back on the next Bill Walton Show. 
Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. 